Let's pray as we begin. Father God, you chose Mary, full of grace, to be the mother of our sovereign and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now fill us with your grace, that with her we may understand your ways and rejoice in your salvation and embrace your will. Through Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, welcome to Advent at Hinsdale Covenant Church. We begin our Advent journey here this morning. And this Advent, we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus Christ through the lens of Mary. I was uh, pleased when I came in this morning to see the group that was decorating here yesterday. Instead of putting the wreath, which we normally put on the uh, front of the altar here, they put this banner of Mary, which keeps Mary front and center for us. It seems totally appropriate for us to choose Mary as the lens that we're going to look at the story through, but still some of you are going to feel a little odd about that today. I mean, why would we as a, as a Protestant church spend most of this month focused on Mary? Isn't that a little bit Catholic of us to do? Some of you are thinking it. I know you were thinking it. And it is one of the major distinctions between Protestant and Catholic churches and Christians after all. I mean, our, our Catholic brothers and sisters, they venerate Mary. They even pray to her. They build cathedral upon cathedral to, to, to honor Mary. She is the most meritorious of saints for them and even considered to be a, a patron saint over all of humanity, over all of us, watching and guarding all the people of the earth. Now, that might seem a little bit overboard to you. It does to me, and that's okay. But just as I may correct some of our Catholic brothers and sisters in their view, Mary, I want to say that we as Protestants get Mary equally wrong, if not more wrong, than they do. If the Catholic Mary is, is so saintly and elevated, the Protestant Mary, that, that pendulum has swung the total opposite direction to the point where Mary is little more than just this silent vessel for, for this Christ child, and, and that's about it. And that is just simply wrong. So our hope throughout the Advent season is that we might bring the pendulum back to center, in some ways, seeing Mary for the remarkable woman of faith that she was and allowing her to spur us on in faith by doing what Mary does better than any other person in all of Scripture. Do you know what she does better than anyone else in the entirety of Scripture? She leads us to Jesus. When we come to understand the real Mary, we will meet Jesus because Mary always leads us humbly and purposefully to Jesus. So the beginning of Mary's story in Scripture is the one that was read for us. It's what we call the Annunciation. It's the account of the angel Gabriel visiting Mary and announcing that she will miraculously conceive and give birth to a son, even though she is a virgin. This scene is actually one of the most prolific in the history of art. Some of you know that that's a passion of mine. I did a deep dive into the subject of the Annunciation today, looking at some of my favorites, and I found sort of a troubling trend. Mary is portrayed more often than not as, as stoic, 
and non-emotional. This is an early Byzantine icon. And you can see Mary on the right-hand side. She has basically no expression at all. Uh, Jan van Eyck, the next one. Uh, the Mary in this one, first of all, it's kind of problematic because she's like completely Northern European looking. Uh, she's also completely void of expression. And she is completely detached from what's going on. The most famous Annunciation painting is by Botticelli. It's one of the most brilliant uh, pieces of, of art in the world. You can go to that one, Milo. It is really a beautiful painting. Um, but even in this painting, Mary is sort of like recoiling in passivity, isn't she? Almost like she's pushing the word of Gabriel away. One of my favorite painters, Fra Angelico, this is Fra Angelico, uh, he couldn't have made Mary look more passive or more miserable in his painting of the Annunciation. Now, all of these are incredible works of art. They're worthy of studying and looking into. But, but the reality is that the, for the bulk of, of, of art and the history of art, Mary's Annunciation can be described by three words. Disinterested, dispassionate, and utterly passive. Now, I look at these paintings and it makes me wonder if these artists really understood the biblical narrative or not. But here's the thing. I, I think that we're tempted to read this passage or hear this passage in the same way that artists so regularly interpreted it. Gabriel shares this huge news to Mary and she receives this news and says, I'm your servant. May it be so with me. Just a, a short little line, right? And really, depending on how you read it, it does kind of sound disinterested, dispassionate, and probably kind of passive. There's this huge news, and she's like, okay, let it, may it be so with me. But her response here, I want, to, I want to impress upon you today, is actually the miracle of the story. Yes, Gabriel coming and speaking is a miracle, and what he said, and certainly what's going to happen to Mary is a miracle, but it is an incredible miracle that Mary consented to this plan. And the deeper we look at the context of, of Mary in the first century, the more we realize that her response is anything but disinterested, dispassionate, and passive. So I want to dig into here. What, what exactly did Mary consent to? I'm indebted to the work of Scott McKnight here, and he makes an important point when he says, however surprising and joyous that day must have been when Mary whispered, may it be to the angel Gabriel, the inner seams of Mary's life were ripped apart. And that's true. We couch this narrative in the Christmas festivities, first Sunday of Advent. But let's remember that this visitation happened months before Mary said, I do, to Joseph. Months and months before. The man to whom she had been promised. For a Jewish woman in the first century to be pregnant before marriage would have been scandalous. But far beyond the, the gossips and the rumors and the, and the people questioning her integrity, Mary was actually, just by virtue of what Gabriel said, she was in significant danger. Mary was young, somewhere between the age of 13 and 16, most scholars agree at that. That's the typical age of engagement in the first century for Jewish women. She was still some months away from her wedding ceremony, but there's a huge difference between weddings today and weddings in the Jewish first century and that is that according to the Torah, the law, the Jewish law, from the moment that she's betrothed to Joseph, she, Mary and Joseph are considered husband and wife. 
It was the wedding that tied them. Uh, I'm sorry, today it's the wedding that ties us, right? That's when we become husband and wife. It was the engagement back in the first century that tied them together legally. So other than sexual relations, which Scripture tells us they had not had, they were husband and wife already in every other legal way. So to be young and engaged and pregnant, that's a dangerous place to be for Mary. We know from the gospel accounts that, that Joseph knew that he was not the father, which makes Mary's status incredibly clear. Because she had made no claim of being forcibly violated by somebody else, Mary would have been labeled as an adulteress right away. Because Joseph was not the father, that must have meant that Mary slept with somebody else, another man. So by law, she was an adulterer. And her claim that God, through the Holy Spirit, had conceived the child in her, you can imagine how that might have gone over in the community and the kind of responses that she would have had. Well, what's the penalty for adultery? Deuteronomy 22 tells us this. If there's a young woman, a virgin already engaged to be married, and a man meets her in the town and lies with her, you shall bring both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she did not cry for help in the town, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, you shall purge this evil from your midst. Oh, that's hard for me to read. It's tough stuff. But what about disputed cases? What about if a woman claims that she didn't sleep with another man or, or, or she claims to have been violated? Or, or what if a husband has brought a false accusation against a woman? Well, there's a law for that as well. We read about this law. It's called the Law of Bitter Waters. It's in Numbers chapter 5. And in this law, the adulteress would have been brought before the priest, would have let down her hair, which is something she wasn't allowed to do, take an oath, and then drink bitter water, which was a, a mixture of dust and water, and the ink that that priest writes the curse in would have gone into that drink. And this was the oath. This is tough, but i got to read it. May the Lord cause you to become a curse among your people when he makes your womb to miscarry and your abdomen to swell. And then the woman, if she was guilty, she would become violently sick and would often miscarry the child. And if she didn't become sick, then she was acquitted. I'm sorry to say, but that's not all. In the first century, the law of bitter waters actually became a public event. Rabbinic sources tell us that the, the suspected adulteress would have been brought to the high court in Jerusalem to see if a confession could be extracted over many days. If she maintained her innocence, which Mary certainly would have, she would have been brought before a, whatever the most prominent city gate was, where she would have been required to drink those bitter waters, her clothes would have been torn to expose her chest, her hair would have been let down, and all of her jewelry would have been forcibly removed from her. And then it was encouraged for passer, people who were passing by to publicly shame that woman, to stare, to jeer, to curse, to spit, in order to make an object lesson out of her for other women. I say all this because you need to know the sorts of things that would have gone through Mary's mind in the moment that Gabriel shared this good news with her. She would have connected her pregnancy to being a suspected adulteress. 
And she would have connected that dot to the public humiliation of a trial in Jerusalem and of the, the, the law of bitter waters and how Joseph, a, a Torah-observant husband, was going to respond to this news. Now, we know that Joseph was an honorable man and that he didn't go forward with this law of bitter waters, but Mary doesn't know that. When Gabriel's speaking to her, Mary has no idea how Joseph is going to react. What are the odds that her Torah-observant husband is going to just not follow this law? Pretty slim, right? Which would mean for her, for sure, bitter waters, public humiliation, possible miscarriage, and potentially even death by stoning. And if she and her child somehow survived this ordeal... She knew that she was going to have a life of villagers taunting her and ostracizing her and her son. This child was going to be illegitimate, which meant that this, this, this child would not be able to participate in the full life of the community, wouldn't be able to go to the temple, wouldn't be able to come rich, become ritually clean. Joseph would have been dishonored and forced to divorce her, which would have left the Messiah fatherless and Mary penniless. All of this, the horror of all of this, and it is horrific, would have been in the forefront of Mary's mind while Gabriel was speaking to her. No sane, intelligent Jewish woman could have avoided this train of thought for herself, for Joseph, for Jesus. She knew the Torah. She knew how the society was going to view her. She knew that she would become an adulteress right away. And yet, how does Mary respond Here am I, a servant of the Lord. May it be with me according to your word. This, my friends, is remarkable. To hear Gabriel's message and to respond, may it be, is an unrivaled statement of faith in Scripture. So let me ask, knowing what you know now, Can this response be seen in any way as disinterested, dispassionate, or passive? Our enunciation images are insufficient, which is why I had to find a different one. A more modern enunciation uh, portrait captured me this week. Uh, The artist is Henry Osawa Tanner, a really interesting uh, painter, 19th century African-American painter. And he had a penchant for biblical scenes, and, and this one's really compelling because it's so different than any of the other ones that we've seen, right? First of all, Gabriel isn't even pictured. He's not in human form, not with big wings. Tanner was influenced by realist painters, and so he didn't believe in painting anything that he couldn't see, which is why Gabriel is simply this pillar of light on the left side of the canvas. It fills up that whole left side, and, and it creates actually a really effective light imbalance that makes the whole canvas sort of tilt towards the figure of Mary, who, miracle of miracles, looks Middle Eastern in this, somewhat Middle Eastern in this painting, which she was. She is not void of expression, but rather is exactly as I think the narrative makes her out to be. She is overwhelmed but she is resolute. There's a strength in this woman, this depiction of this woman, that is undeniable. She is humble, and she's fierce too. And I'm wondering if I can just reframe Mary in this light for us. Not a passive carrier for Christ. This woman is a model of humble and fierce faith. 
And our story this morning makes that clear. Now, if you walk away from the first Sunday of Advent with a better understanding and perhaps a new respect for Mary, that's great. I'm going to consider that a win. We're going to build on that throughout the Advent season, so we hope that you'll continue to join us to experience Advent through Mary's narrative. But there's more to glean from this than simply respect for Mary or respect for this story of the Annunciation. You remember that I said we tend to read this passage in the same way that many artists interpret it. Well, I want to take that a step further. And, and this is hard to say, but I feel like the Spirit is leading me to say it. I'm afraid that we tend to live our spiritual lives much like artists often interpret Mary in the Annunciation. I mean, listen, two, over 2,000 years ago, somewhere in Nazareth, God sent an angel to speak to Mary in, a, in an enclosed room. And what I want to say to you this morning is something I believe from the depths of my heart. God is in this room, and God is speaking. This morning, right now, here, in this place. Through the music and the prayers and, and, and the sermon and the beauty of this place and the person sitting next to you and, and even directly to your heart, God is, is speaking. He showed up today and he's speaking. How do you receive God today? So often we are disinterested, dispassionate, and passive in the presence of a holy God. We often don't recognize the power of God's presence. We're so distracted by our own schedules and agendas. We don't slow down and listen. We question when God is speaking like, oh, is that really God or is that just something else? We think about what God is saying to us and we, and we, and we think about the cost and the scorn and the ridicule if we were to take God seriously. We stay reserved in God's presence because we don't want to seem too charismatic or too spiritual and I don't want to cry and mess up my makeup and I don't want to make a scene in church. We search for what God can give to us with as little cost on our part as possible. We listen to God long enough until something makes us uncomfortable or convicts us and then we retreat. And most tragically, we don't allow the presence of God to change us. We're like Mary in a Renaissance painting. <laughs> but what if we acted like the real Mary actually was? What if we were humble and fierce? If we were faithful in the face of great cost? What if we value the presence of God and, and, and God's word so dearly that we listen intently and we count the cost and we say, God, I'm your servant. Everything that you've said, just may it be so. I have to tell you, I don't always recognize God's presence. Even in this place, as I say that God is here, I don't always recognize it. I don't always hear him speaking. But God is here and he does speak. It, just in this room alone in my life, I've heard God speak so many times. Just in this room, this, this place alone, I've heard him say the following things. Lars, I need you to live a healthier life. I need you to run away from this sinful behavior in your life. I placed a tough conversation in front of you and you need to take it and you need to do it. I need you to open up your checkbook and, and make a costly gift. I need you to move forward even when the future is uncertain and you can't see it. 
And, and even right down here, I need you to get down on your knees and repent. My friends, God is with us and he is still speaking. That is the incarnation. That's Jesus. That's what we celebrate in this Advent season. God with us. God shows up and God speaks. He's speaking to you. Words that will guide your life, will lead your life, will change your life. How will you receive him today? How will you receive him in this Advent season? Will you be disinterested, dispassionate, and passive? Or will you be like Mary? Humble and fierce and remarkably faithful. If you'll choose to be like Mary, it will change your life just like it did hers. And to that, I say, may it be so for each and every one of us.